0: Our world is now only moments away from total annihilation. The world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. There will be a worldwide famine. You can see it right now, beginning to develop. And then there will be many, many people who will be killed. And there's going to be chaos, and there's going to be incredible danger. Unlike the world could ever imagine. The last days of the world. Well, we are going to wrap up in-game. First of all, congratulations to the graduates. We have some graduations happening today. Some happened a couple weeks ago. And uh, we're excited for all our graduates, which we have quite a few connected to our church. They don't all like to stand on the platform on any particular day, but... uh, Great stuff. We're going to wrap up end game, and for some of you, I know that's going to be a big relief. You're like, finally, we're wrapping this thing up, and some of you could talk about prophecy all year long, so you're in going, oh, but either way, hang with us, and uh, we'll try to, try to get this done. We have a new series next week that we think that you'll enjoy. Uh, the whole point about prophecy is that we need to keep in mind Jesus is the true and righteous king, over the universe, and that includes, of course, our world. And Jesus will come for his people, to def- and he'll come to defeat his enemies, and he'll come to rule his creation, and he'll come to judge all people. That's all going to happen, and that's what I want us to look at and in, in that context. The king will come for his people. He is our righteous king, he will come for his people, and and basically what I want to do is a little bit of a recap on a timeline, so if you haven't been here, uh, this is going to look a little strange to you, just hang in, we'll be talking about something else next Sunday, but we've covered a lot of ground, we've been in this series now, this is our sixth week, we started laying the foundation in the book of Daniel, which is an Old Testament book. That covers a lot of future events. And then that's the book that Jesus himself referred to when he was talking about end times. And so we've been building on that the the three weeks after two weeks on Daniel. And now we're going to wrap it up today. So here's the recap, if you will. Uh, The first thing that will happen. The next thing, I should say, that's going to happen on God's prophetic timeline is something that we call... The rapture, and that is we talked about that in detail a few Sundays ago. But that's when all true believers are caught up to to be with Jesus in the heavens, and that is the first phase of Jesus's second coming. And He will complete that seven years later uh, at what we formally call the second coming. When the rapture happens, the church is removed, and God's focus comes back. To Israel, which makes perfect sense when we think of this all in terms of Daniel's 77 week periods, and 69 of those have passed, and that led to the first coming of Jesus. Now there's a break, and there's one last seven-year period to happen. Well, it would make sense, because the first 69, actually, when God revealed this to Daniel, he said, this has everything, these weeks, these seven-year period, 70 of them, they have everything to do with the nation of Israel and Jerusalem. And so it would be natural that in that last seven-year period that the shift focuses from the church, leaves the church, and refocuses on the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. And so then as that shift focuses, there's a war against Israel called the War of Gog and Magog don't know exactly when this war starts, whether it's before or after the very start of that seven-year period. It could be either one. We can't really tell. After that war, there is the the peace treaty. Again, before or after is the peace treaty starts the seven-year period. We're, we're told that very explicitly. Uh, the seven-year period is described as seven years. It's described as three and a half years. And three and a half years, it's described as 1,260 days and 1,260 days. All those, and that's all on a based on a Jewish 360-day year calendar. And all that, it's, it's, we're told over and over, Old Testament and New Testament, about this period of time. But it always starts with the signing of a peace treaty. That peace treaty with Israel that is for seven years... Uh, it starts with a leader from Europe and the revived Roman Empire, and we can see that in the European Union today. But in the future, there will be 10 countries that will dominate the European Union, and out of that confederation comes this world leader who is also the Antichrist, and he signs this peace, peace treaty. So we have the 10-nation revived Roman Union. During this time also, God seals 144,000 Jewish people, 12,000 from each tribe. These are men who are, uh, have not been with women and they are God's evangelists on the earth and they preach the gospel to Jewish people and non-Jewish people alike and mini- they minister during this seven-year tribulation time. There are also two special witnesses like Moses And Elijah, and we say like that because these two seem to have special abilities to bring plagues, kind of like Moses did in the Old Testament. And because of that, the world hates them. Because of that, they are eventually killed. They're killed right at the midpoint of the tribulation. So three and a half years in, they are killed, and the world celebrates. And people start exchanging gifts, almost like we do Christmas today. And everybody tunes in, and they're watching this. We never knew how that could be except for now. Everybody's got satellite, and everybody's got cell phone. We could easily see how that happens. But they're watching these uh, two dead bodies lay on the street. They do not bury them. They just leave them there to rot, because, and they celebrate that they're dead. Three and a half days after they're killed, they are resurrected, and everybody sees that if they're still tuning in, and that strikes fear, Into the world. Now, during this first three and a half years, the sacrificial system, the temple has been built and the sacrificial system has been restored. In the middle of this three and a half years, along with the two witnesses being killed, this world leader violates his treaty. He double crosses Israel. He comes into Jerusalem. He violates the temple. He stops the sacrifices. He violates the temple by proclaiming himself as God and entering into the temple and and seating himself there while he's there or maybe an image of himself while he is not there is there in the temple. Because of this, the Jewish people flee Jerusalem because now they are being persecuted by the Antichrist. And then this begins the second three and a half years of the tribulation time. That's called the Great Tribulation because things get even worse during this second three and a half years. Then it's during this time that there is a mark of the beast, and that is conjunction with the false prophet who comes to be the assistant to the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the beast. It's his mark, but it's the false prophet that puts this system into place. Could never really figure out that can ha- how that could happen, but now we could easily see how we can do that when you see a bunch of European countries going to a common... Um, uh, economic system, the euro, and then we also see that all of us are moving toward a cashless society, even in places like China, here, you know, very few people uh, deal with cash anymore, so if somebody can control all that, we could see how that could, always, could, could easily happen, so if you don't have this mark, then you cannot buy and sell or do any transactions uh, involving money. During this time, the second three and a half years, as all these things are happening, and persecution against the Jewish people intensifies. The Jewish people finally start turning to Jesus as their Messiah. Maybe as a result of the ministry of the 144,000, partly maybe as a result of, of the two witnesses that are now dead and resurrected. And, or, and it could be that also the Bible's telling us that even their leaders are encouraging them to turn to Christ. They're hiding out in the wilderness because of this increased persecution. And they start crying out to God, Jesus Christ specifically, for deliverance. And we don't see that today. Most Jewish people that inhabit the state of Israel are either, you know, they basically um, don't practice religion, although they're Jewish, or they're Orthodox Jews. There's very few Bible-believing Jewish people in, in Israel today, people who would follow Christ. And so this brings us to the second point is the king will come to defeat his enemies. What ends the seven, that, that 70th week or that seven-year tribulation period is a war. And it's called the Battle of Armageddon. How many of you have heard of that? The Battle of Armageddon. Yeah, it's part of our culture, Armageddon. Which is very interesting because the word Armageddon only appears once in Scripture. There's another word that's similar, Megiddo, because that's a place, and I'll tell you how they're connected. That's a place. That that appears in Scripture a few times that, hey, this was in Megiddo that something something happened. But Armageddon uh, only appears once, and here's where it's at it's in Revelation 16 16. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har. Megadon, Armageddon. And so most English translations have Armageddon there, but the NASB that's trying to be really specific has basically this is Mount Megiddo, And so Har Megadon uh, in, in Scripture. Now, it, that we say the battle of Armageddon, but actually the way Scripture de- describes it and that same word for battle is really, it's talked about as a war or a conflict or a campaign. So it's not necessarily one battle, but it ends, uh, it culminates in a battle. Now, I've been on Mount Megiddo uh, to Armageddon, and basically uh, there's a tell that was originally built on a hill, and they actually, archaeologists, sliced through that hill a deep ravine to reveal 26 layers of civilization that all happened there on Megiddo and also Solomon had a fortress there. Basically, there was always somebody there, and it's the scene of countless battles because this hill overlooks and really controls the whole Jezreel Valley, which you can see in the background of this picture. So there's this huge, broad, fertile plain, and that is the battleground of Megiddo. And this town has always been um, occupied Because it controls these ancient trade routes from southern Europe and Asia and Africa. It all converges right here. So there's always a trade route here. So if you can control this, you you controlled trade in the area. So there's been countless battles there. There's always been uh, a civilization there because of those ancient trade routes. Now, then that leads us to the second coming of Christ. Just as Jesus came the first time, Jesus is telling us that he's coming again at the end of the great tribulation. We don't know when he's coming. That's first phase, the rapture. We will know when he's coming, second coming, because he's telling us, hey, all this stuff's going to happen. And he's very explicit about all the signs. We've talked a lot about that. So, And we're very familiar with his first coming because we celebrate that and talk about it every Christmas time. But his second coming gets more ink in the Bible than his first coming. References to the second coming outnumber references to Christ's first coming eight to one. So we have that all over. Jesus mentioned his return 21 times. Jesus said that himself. As a matter of fact, the second coming is second only to faith as the most predominant subject in the New Testament. So, what does the New Testament talk mostly about? Us having faith in Christ, number one, second, the second coming of Jesus. Here it's described for us by John. In Revelation 19, let's listen. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty." And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that's the second coming. And so all these events happen in a sequence. Are you still with me? You hanging with me? All right. And he comes and basically comes first of all to defend his people because now the Jewish people have fled Jerusalem they're hiding in the wilderness most of them have been killed and there's a remnant that survived they've turned to Jesus as their true messiah finally and they are calling out to God for deliverance and he does Jesus comes in to defeat his enemies Here's how he described it himself in Matthew 24, 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This is the sign that no one could miss the coming, the second coming of Jesus. And and here's the thing that we never think about. So if you're a true believer, you've been raptured already with Christ. Everybody has that same view, that you're raptured with Christ at this point. And what we don't think about is that when, and then how the rapture is described by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, we go, we're caught up to him with the Lord, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. Well, when Jesus comes back, guess guess where we are? We're with him coming back. We're with him, in this case he's saying mounted on white horses as part of the army of God coming back with him. Because he says he comes with all his saints. So we return with our king as part of his army. Now, that's probably a way different vision of heaven that most of us have, right? And, and we see culture defining heaven for us, and it drives me crazy because it's an incredibly boring place, right? I mean, how's it described? You know, there's clouds. We're wearing robes. The robes part—that's that, probably right. And then we're playing harps. You know, it's, and nothing is going on, right? That's not the way Scripture's describing heaven. Scripture's des- describing it this way: we our bo- our soul is with Christ. Our bodies are raptured up. If we're dead, if we're living, we're raptured up, body and soul. We go with God to heaven, uh, Jesus to heaven, in a place that he's prepared for us. We experience something called a huge celebration called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then when it's time for the second coming, we mount up and arm up and we come back with him. That's heaven in scripture. We mess it up, don't we? It's kind of interesting because some of you are going, yeah! And some of you are going, what? You know, because... Because some of, some of us, I think, and maybe, maybe more men are this way, we're like, it, we feel like we're wired up for battle. Like God made us this way somehow. The problem is, when we do battle on this earth whether that's literally as part of a war strategy or whatever, or just battle in our lives against people we don't like or just circumstances. The problem is when we do battle on this earth, we have to constantly be checking our own motivations. Because often we battle and it's not for a righteous cause, it's for a selfish cause. And so here is a time in the future where we are called to battle, And we respond and we know that our motives are pure because we are following the righteous king. We know that our cause is righteous. We enter into battle with no fear because we are confident of Christ's victory. It's a whole different deal. And then, of course, there's the whole horses part. And some people are like, no, Kevin, I don't do horses. And some of you, wow, that just sounds so bizarre to me. A lot of times in Scripture, it, we're describing these battles that will happen in the future. It, it talks about the imagery of horses, and we don't know if that's literal or not. But here's what I want you to remember. In the Bible, like in Revelation, you have John who lives in the first century. Trying to describe what God, the picture that God has painted for him, but he has a first-century vocabulary, so he has no word for a car, or an engine, or a machine, let alone a tank, or a helicopter, or anything like that. So let me just, so let me just, we don't have this on the screen. Let me just read you a verse. So here in Revelation, you have first-century John trying to put into first-century words something that he's seen. And what he's seen is something that he calls locusts who appear like horses prepared for battle. And here's one place where he describes them. They, so locusts, he's describing a locust. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, of many horses rushing to battle. So what's he He's saying? Something that looks like a locust, but it's made out of metal, and then it's super loud, and when it's going, the wings are making all this noise like, a rushing, like rushing horses and chariots in a battle. You know, And we, we hear that, and we're saying, well, that sounds like a helicopter. But no, he didn't have all those words for him. So a lot of times when you're reading this, you have to understand, hey, When he's saying horses and he's saying they're prepared for battle, we don't know if that's literal horses or just the best words that he can use to describe what he's seeing that might be modern machinery. But let me throw this out. There might not be modern machinery in the last battle because they have these things now called EMPs, electromagnetic pulse. It could be a nuclear electromagnetic pulse. So we all know a nuclear blast is devastating. You have a blinding, searing light. You have intense heat for miles. You have a radiation cloud that can drift for hundreds of miles. But what also happens is something that covers more territory is the electromagnetic pulse that comes with a nuclear blast. And what does that do? That goes through metal, and it fries all electronic circuitry. All right, so now all of a sudden our, our cars if you did this strong enough, our cars don't work. Nothing with electronic circuits works. None of our machines for battle any longer works. So it could be that all of a sudden the machinery we use for battle has become obsolete and we revert back to horseback. I mean, we don't know which way that is, but I'm just saying it could be either way and it would both make sense in today's world. That's what we need to understand. And finally, we will ride into battle with no conflicting motives, knowing that our cause is righteous, because we follow our righteous king. And then third, the king comes to rule his creation. The king doesn't come to do a takeover and rule what's not his. The earth belongs to Christ. It's his. We are his whether we acknowledge that or not. He is our rightful king. And after Jesus returns, he'll establish something called the millennial kingdom. So we see that on our timeline in the band there, the millennium or the millennial kingdom. Now the word millennial or millennium does not appear in scripture This is just a conjunction of two Latin words, one mille that means a thousand, and the other annum that means year. It just means, millennium just means thousand years, thousand years. So anytime you see that term, that's all it means, a thousand years. Christ will come and reign for a thousand years. Now he reigns from Jerusalem, and this is a lot of what the Old Testament prophets talked about, because now... Again, Israel is in the center of Christ's reign. And so when they see Jesus coming as king, not as servant, which they had a hard time separating those two events, this is what they pictured. The millennial reign of Christ. It goes for a thousand years. So people will enter into the millennium that have not been killed. All the enemies of Christ have been wiped out at the battle of Armageddon. And the people who are living, who are all Christ followers, Jewish and Gentile, enter in to this thousand year reign with their fleshly bodies, and so they and they experience a thousand years of teaching, and goodness, and peace, with Jesus ruling as the Son of David. On the throne from Jerusalem. But then, even then, after a thousand years, the millennial reign ends with rebellion. And we're thinking, how can that be? If everybody who entered into the, this thousand year reign were believers, how can a thousand years later you have rebellion? Well, first of all, just because people who entered in, they could enter in as believers, but then in a thousand years, they're reproducing, and people are multiplying on the face of the earth. But then why? Why would that happen with Christ right there reigning physically, from Jerusalem? Well, it could happen because there's still one problem in the millennium. For people who are living, it's our sinful hearts. We still bring with us this sinful nature. Now, we won't be there if you're a believer. But the the people who do enter in, they still have their sinful hearts. And this is teaching us something. It's not environment. Because the millennial kingdom is a great environment, but people still rebel. Because it's not about the environment. It's about what's inside of us. And so we call Armageddon... The final battle, because that's the final time there's a conflict with people fighting. But actually, there's this last rebellion, and in this rebellion, people align themselves against God, they march on Jerusalem, but Jesus just deals with it. There's no bat- battle, they just, phew, gone. And then, that's when we enter into the eternal state. And the eternal state involves the new heaven and the new earth and there finally we experience the perfection that God wants us to experience a perfect environment because then finally no more sin no more sorrow no more curse and we can live with God forever in our glorified bodies without our sin nature revelation 21 Begins this way, describing that. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And so then we are in this eternal state to be forever with God. No longer, you know, I, I don't know about you. I cannot wait for the time I can be with God and not have this continual internal conflict with my sin nature and my selfish motives. That that is now gone forever. And I can dwell with Christ as a righteous being in that he has given me righteousness as all believers. So that's how the timeline goes, but I left out one thing. Before the eternal state, there is judgment. The king will judge. The king will come to judge all all people. Now, God has judged people and nations all through history. And we see a lot of that in the Old Testament where Israel, they stray from God and they start worshiping false gods and God judges them. And usually God used an ungodly pagan army to judge Israel. And then God would judge the pagan army. And we see that just go back and forth, back and forth all through the Old Testament. So God judges his people. And he's done that in the past. And we also see that in the seven-year tribulation time. Tribulation just means seven years of bad news. And we see that happening there, where at the beginning of the seven years, God is judging the earth and judging Israel, God's people, for rejecting Christ. And then at the end, as God's people have turned to Jesus, the Jewish people have turned to their true Messiah, then... The judgment continues as God judges all the other nations. And so we see judgment all through the tribulation, just like we did in the Old Testament. But, um, and and by the way, if you're reading through Revelation, it's judgments when you're reading about the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. It's like... What John sees in heaven is like, who's worthy, we sing about this, who's worthy to open the scroll? And the scroll is like the title deed to the earth, and it has seven seals. So if you can imagine a scroll, and he unrolls, and he snaps a wax seal that's been sealed closed, and he opens it, and it shows a little bit of the scroll. And then there's another seal, and then that gets opened, and a little bit more of the scroll, and another seal. And every one of those seals are judgments that come on to the earth that are poured out on the earth and then at the seventh seal when that snapped open then that reveals seven trumpets and so the seventh seal consists of seven trumpets that announce seven more judgments that are happening on the earth and then the seventh trumpet announces that that last trumpet is seven bowls why bowls because they're poured out Quickly, seven bowls of judgment that are also poured out on the earth. So it's all that judgment when you're reading about uh, when you're reading about uh, seals and trumpets and scrolls. That's all judgment that God uses to judge Israel and judge the nations uh, that are warring with Israel. Revelation 16:9 says it this way: Men were scorched with fierce heat. And they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. I think we always think that as soon as somebody says, oh, there is a God, and oh, man, I, that everybody's going to be just turned to him. No, they'll still rebel. Revelation 1.7 says, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. So that judgment happens. But that's not the judgment I'm talking about. In the end, there will be two great judgments that Scripture speaks about specifically. And the first one is called the judgment seat of Christ, or the Bema seat in the the Greek. And this judgment happens immediately after the rapture. And this judgment only involves Christians and you're going whoa 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 so that's all of us we're, we're at the judgment seat of Christ and we're all thinking whoa Kevin I've been forgiven I cannot be condemned right this is not a judgment that involves condemnation or guilt bema seat in the Greek this type of judgment is the judgment we see for example at the Olympic Games in the first century that it's a judgment to hand out rewards It's not about the evil that you've done. It's about the works that you should have done for righteousness and and then what level you did that or level of rewards. And there's a series of crowns, and I don't want to get into that, but we basically can receive rewards in heaven. Now, when we receive those awards, and if they are in the form of a crown, I believe there's a future time that's described for us in Revelation where we will cast those crowns at the feet of Christ as a way to worship him. But that's called the judgment seat of Christ. All authentic believers are in this first judgment right after the rapture. Second Corinthians 5.10 describes that for us. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking about the believers that he's writing to in Corinth. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So it's not a judgment to determine guilt or condemnation. It's a judgment that will judge our works on whether they effectively or truly were used by God. And so it's reward or loss of reward. Our works are evaluated. And that's why Jesus says, remember, don't store up treasures here on earth. Store up treasures where? in heaven store up treasures in heaven that's what he's talking about do hear what brings reward in heaven that's what he was clearly saying so that's the first final judgment the other final judgment is the great white throne judgment and so we back up in our timeline a little bit because this happens just before the eternal state after the millennium the great white throne judgment where all unbelievers are resurrected and judged. And in this judgment, it's all bad news. Because there are no believers there and there are no second chances. And unlike what people think, I I think people have all these impressions that when they meet God, they're going to say this or they're going to say that. But we will not be graded on a curve. We will not be judged or evaluated by our cultural opinions of what's right or wrong at the time that we lived. They'll be judged by the unbending standard of God's truth, and that judgment will stand forever. Sometimes I will talk to people about, well, if you met God, what would you say, non-believers? Maybe the most common response I get when I ask people that question is they'll say something like this, a lot of different response, but if there's one that's the most common, it would be this one. Well, I, I would just say, I would stand there before God and say, I always tried to do the right thing. And then I'll tell them, well then, you will be judged for saying that. A prideful lie that you always tried to do the right thing. Because nobody always tries to do the right thing. That's just another lie that you'll be judged for. People think that they will judge God for being the judge. As if God could be, in a negative way, judgmental. God is the judge. We are his creation. That is his place. And there will be righteousness. And there will be justice. And it requires judgment. And that will happen. Of course, we live in a day today... We're all kinds of religions, uh, even some who say they're Christian. Uh, For example, denominations like Seventh-day Adventists, they reject the concept of hell. Jehovah Witnesses, not saying they're Christians, they're not, but they reject the concept of hell. But alarmingly, increasingly, evangelical Christian churches are rejecting the concept of hell. Why? Because it's offensive to our culture. It's not offensive to every culture, but it is offensive to our culture. If we lived in a culture where we were ruled by some brutal, totalitarian dictator, and we were poor, and we could be abused, and our, our family could be abused, raped, killed, uh, we can be starved to death by not allowing us to eat our own food, because that food would be taken to somebody else. If we lived in a, in a society like that, we would love the concept of judgment. But, but we here, we don't. We live in a society where we have it pretty good. Everybody here probably lives in the top 3%, 4 5% of the wealthiest people on the planet. And so for us, everything's good. And how can people be so judgmental? Yeah, you're not crying out for justice. But half of the world is. And it doesn't matter. Because for God to be just... And for him to bring justice to our universe, judgment has to happen. Jesus was judged for our sin. Jesus paid the price for our sin. And if you don't have that, then you pay your own price. That's what God is telling us. We cannot reject a doctrine that's so clearly taught in Scripture. Jesus talked about hell three times more than he talked about heaven. You can't just scrub that out because people don't like it because it offends people today. And i got to tell you, there's going to be a lot of people who are religious that are going to find themselves standing before the great white throne judgment. They're going to be surprised. Actually, that's what Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty two. He says, "...Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles?" And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And Jesus shatters this popular opinion that we have today that believing in our own personal truth makes it true for you. Truth is not subjective. We don't all just, we hear this, we hear this kind of language All the time in our culture. Well, whatever's right for you, whatever's true for you. There's no right for you and truth. Right is right for everyone. Truth is true for everyone. It's objective, not subjective. And our culture hates it. And our culture wants to keep bringing everything down to whatever you want to do, do it. But that is not right. Before God, And so we, we wrap up this series. And, and what are we thinking? Hey, why would we even do it? Why would we focus on this? Hopefully so that we will snap out of our spiritual complacency. So we would awake from our own apathy. That we would realize that our time is limited and God has given us something to do. A mission to accomplish. That the battle is upon us now. A spiritual battle. And we make decisions that affect this battle every day. Today, tomorrow, you will make decisions that impacts the spiritual battle happening now all around us. Our time is limited. Revelation 22, 20 says this. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's stand together for prayer. Father God in heaven, we thank you that, first of all, that you offer this free gift of salvation. And Father, we recognize that there are our friends and people that we know standing right here with us that have this form of godliness and they have this uh, feeling of Christianity, but they've never humbly come to you recognizing that it's all faith, that there's nothing they contribute to their salvation and just cry out to you helpless for salvation, for deliverance, for forgiveness. And Father, for those whom that's true of this morning. We pray that they would be able to see that, that you, through your spirit, that you would reveal it to their hearts. That, yeah, they do church, and they live what they think are moral lives. But they don't really know you. And, Father, we pray that they would turn to you simply on faith, just cry out to you in desperation, knowing that there's nothing we can do Salvation, it's all a gift. And Father, we thank you for revealing to us what's coming in the future because you tell us we should be ready, we should be waiting, we should be about our master's business. God, help us to do that. And God, we thank you for the joy for those of us who are believers. Lord, we thank you for the joy of knowing that there will be a time in the future where, We can be with you and not marred by our sin any longer because you have washed us and made us clean by the precious blood of your son.